Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Your first coaches were your mom and dad who taught you how to communicate, tie your shoes, or play a simple game of catch. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. To donate, go to paypal.me slash Raphael. That's S-I-F-U-R-A-F-A-E-L. I'm trying to keep this podcast free of advertisements. Anything you can donate is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The majority of people, the first time you're doing something, there's a little bit of trepidation, there's a little bit of nervousness, but the more you do it, the more comfortable you become. My guest today is Sean Tyler Foley. Tyler is an accomplished film and stage performer and has been acting in film and television since he was six years old. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me on Coaching Call. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing good, Raphael. I'm excited to talk to you. I mean, gosh, you're in the entertainment industry, but when you think about it, and I like the fact of, of how you have it on your bio and the fact that you're a father first, and a husband, and a son, and a performer in that order. I kind of like that. Tell me why that order seems important to you. Well, I think it shows my priorities, for mm, one. Of course. And um, it's also reflective of my evolution. Uh, mm. I've always felt that I, w- I was born a performer. Like, in utero, I was a performer. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was dancing around in my mother's tummy. And, uh, and then I, when I was born, I, I obviously was a child and a son first. And then I grew into my adulthood, got married, became a husband, and most recently have become a father. And in each one of those time periods, I have gained a new title without losing the previous title. But the priority within my life has shifted. And right. there was a time, you know, particularly when I was still just a son, right. that performance was the most important thing to me. Mm. You know, that was my focus. That was my drive. That was everything that held my attention and my interest was being on stage, being in front of the camera, uh, entertaining an audience. And, and as I retired from the business and as my relationship with my mother grew closer, especially being able to, as an adult, look back and recognize the sacrifices that she made so that I could do all those things, then my relationship with her as a son became uh, a larger focus and, and being a good son to my mother 
Mm. And then obviously I've put a lot of focus into my marriage and being a, a good husband to my wife. And now that I have a daughter, really wanting to be the best father that I can be to her while still maintaining those other titles. I'm still a husband <laughs> to my wife. I'm still a son to my mother and I am still a performer, right. uh, but it is that sequence. And, and I think that's why premier and foremost, I am a father to my daughter. And that is my, my focus. It's not my sole focus, but it's definitely my primary focus uh, currently. Well, congratulations. You know, so many people don't understand what you just talked about. They really don't. Because they're just, they're just trying to live day by day instead of understanding who they are and what their purpose is. And obviously, you found your wise, right? And I know you like talking about that. But important things in life shape us. And the fact that you realized the sacrifices your mom made to help you become who you are, not many, not many kids do that. So congratulations, and, and, and your mom's a lucky person to have a great son, because most parents don't get to see that, don't get to feel that. A lot of parents, you know, their kids come to an age and they barely hear from them, right? And it's like, uh, I think I have a kid, you know? <laughs> so it's important to, to recognize everyone who's made an impact in our lives, especially our parents, whether it was positive or negative, because to me, all impact. Is going to shape us so talk yeah, no i would agree and go ahead ask the question because i'm sure we'll get to it. <laughs> that was great to say. <laughs> no you, you know one of the things that I, i'm always intrigued by is how did a person become who they are today and to me that always stems from childhood so that's why i'd like to start with you so this way we get to know tyler from the little tyler <laughs> to the tyler that he is today and to me, that's so important because we forget sometimes the people who impacted us. But when we go back and we start to remember things like, oh, wow, that happened, this happened. Oh, my gosh, I totally forgot about this thing. And those are the things that we don't realize when we're older because we're moving forward. But we sometimes forget to remember those little moments in life that shaped us. So take us back, Tyler. Well, and I'm, I mean, I've had so many impactful and influential moments within my yes. life, and I'm blessed and grateful to be able to, to A, first of all, remember them. Like mm. some of my first memories were, you know, at one year old. And wow. I know my wife laughs. She's like, I don't have memories until I'm like three or four. I'm like, no, I have distinct memories before mm. my first birthday. But I think the, the most impactful, the most influential in my life. I definitely came around six years old. I mean, I started the first grade, right? You're starting school at that point. It was my first introduction to, to like really good educators too. Mm -hmm. Like I was blessed. My elementary school, my first six primary teachers were just amazing educators. And again, that's one of those things that you can't fully appreciate until you've gotten out of that environment to be able to look back and go... Hey, not all teachers are like that. No. And I mean, the fact that I can go through the entire list, you know, mm. I, I started with uh, Judy Nielsen, who to this day is an influence in my life. In fact, my, I, in my acknowledgments in my book, I recognize all six of them because Mrs. Nielsen um, was the first one to really 
recognize that I, I could be on stage and make sure that I got there. And when I was acting professionally, she was the one who figured out how to help me with my lines. So she was the one I would sit down with her and she would read all of the other people's parts and then help me read my part. And then we were recorded on one of those really old um, <laughs> cassette recorders, like the beige ones that had like the buttons along the bottom and the, and the little red record button. Right. And she would let me take that home. She would sign it out from the library and let me take home this this uh, voice recorder. And then I could listen to my lines over and over again. And and I mean, that's that's well above that's and beyond huge. what any elementary oh, yeah. school teacher should do. And, you know, Mrs. McGuigan, the next year, really encouraged my scholastic learning. At that point, my father had passed away and mm -hmm. I was getting when when my father passed away, he was an educator as well. And I think a lot of the teachers initially kind of gave me a pass and gave me a buy mm. because, Oh, Tyler, you know, he's lost his father. He's grieving. We don't, we don't need to place great expectations on him or et cetera, et cetera. And Mrs. McGuigan really clamped down on that in the second grade because my father passed away just at, just near towards the end of the first grade. And she was like, listen, you, you can't, you can't just skirt around. She demanded the best out of me and subsequently got the best out nice. of me. And then Mrs. Young amped that up <laughs> by a thousand points um, the following year in the third grade. And yeah, just every, every teacher that I had through the rest of elementary school was, was influential. And then I had great teachers in uh, junior high as well. I know Rick Dawson, um, I, I was able to get through most of my high school math based on my junior high school math and science teacher. Like mm -hmm. he set up a foundation for learning too. That was, that was unprecedented. I remember in grade nine, him handing me a grade 10 trig book and saying, I think you'd be able to do this trig and this calculus really well. And I ended up doing my grade 10 curriculum in, in the ninth grade so that when I did go into grade 10, uh, I was able to not only breeze through grade 10 math, but then actually take uh, 11th grade math that year as well, which was helpful because I was taking a lot of time off to perform in shows. So all of those things, right? Like you start with those education pieces, but there's also the bit with my father passing away. And then the, the community that rallied around me at that point and being able to get into professional theater and learn in that environment too, like all of those things were impactful and would take a considerably larger length of time than what we have on your show to go through how each one played a part in my in my life and i i have a great acknowledgement for each one of those moments and what they've done to shape me what would you say was your first real gig getting into the industry oh that's easy uh that the first um uh, time i got to do uh christmas carol with theater calgary I think I was um, I was six when I, I was cast for it, but I was seven by the time I actually performed it. Mm. And it was that was yeah, that was an amazing show, an amazing cast. Uh, I was one of the original uh, members of the company. And that show has gone on to have a, a, an incredible run. I think they've been doing it for over 30 years now and in different iterations. And and the funny thing is, is a lot of the cast come back in different capacities. That's the other thing about that, that company um, is that they bring people back in different roles. 
you know, so you have people who have started out playing like Tiny Tim or Young Ebenezer, and then they move on and they start playing Bob Cratchit or they're paying, playing Jacob Marley or they're playing shopkeepers like they're 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 everything. And then there haven't been a lot of Scrooges in the 30 years either. I think that two or three people have taken on that role in that time. Oh. And um, it's it's just yeah, it, that was my first gig. That was the first one professional where I actually got a paycheck. And then I had done a, a few school plays prior to that. I'd done like the, the Christmas pageant and and Easter, uh, some kind of Easter thing. What would you say? You know, when, when you talked about bringing people back, when I was a little kid, I used to sometimes come home and, and see someone watching a soap opera. And I'm like, didn't that person die? And they're like, oh, no, now there's a cousin or this or that. And I was like, that's too funny. So when you said that, that's immediately what I thought of soap operas, right? But now they're playing an entirely different role. And because they're in costume, they definitely look different as well, right? Yeah. So that that's really cool of that company to do something like that. And to understand, well, and you know, people need work, right? Yeah, and this year actually they did something really, really interesting because there was um, the social distancing requirements and all all the stuff that is currently taking place in the world. They still wanted to stage the play, but they needed to do it in a safe way that satisfied union rules and satisfied government health regulations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they actually staged the play last year virtually so they um they did it on the stage but there was no audience and then this year they opened it up with an audience with the same staging and they only had three cast mem members mm. so they had two, they had two companies with three cast members each so they had company a and company b both with three cast members and each one of the three took on multiple roles wow and that staging was Difficult. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. well, oh, I'm sure. Technically, technically, it couldn't have been easy because they had to do things with sound effects on their mic. They had to do uh, lighting cues. And then the actors themselves had to not only take on different voices and different uh, characters, but then they had to take on different physicalities so that you could clearly see the transition between characters and the way that those performers seamlessly did that was just a sight to behold i was so uh impressed with that staging because they, a, a, it can't be easy but mm -hmm. the creativity that came out of it and that's one of the things that i've loved the most about the last 18 months is the ingenuity and creativity that has been sparked by necessity so that we are still being entertained Yes. And that and that we're still having business and commerce, et cetera. Like all the innovation that has been driven in the last 18 months is something that I've I've taken note of and been really thoroughly impressed by. Yeah, likewise. You know, it, it's funny during this whole thing, there's a comedy club near my house. And they sent me an email and said, we're doing comedy virtually. So they had like, you know, a couple of hundred people to sign up. And you sit in your living room and it was like you're there and the comics are looking at everybody and, and this, they're waving to people and all that. So, yeah, people have definitely stepped up. And that's the only people who are successful. There's some people who took a pity party, a pity party, and I'm sorry, and they 
said, oh, why is this happening? Instead of saying, what can I make out of this, right? Can I make something better? Can I adapt? And that's, that's the real key is adaptability. When we do that, we grow. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. And it, a good friend of mine, Jason Krause, w- was the first person to make me aware of the concept, although I'm sure he's not the first to point it out, but I, I know it through his work. And, it, you know, he says you're in one of two states, you're either in growth or contraction. And he is a former Olympic athlete and runs a program called the Science of Success, which is phenomenal because. His program really blends actual scientific research into personal development, uh, like self-development and, and personal growth. And, you know, I, I love when he taught, he tells a story when he's uh, presenting about when he was weight training and his trainer was pushing him, you know, do one more rep, do one more. I think he was doing leg presses or something like that. And he was pushing a ridiculous amount of weight. And the, the trainer was like, just push through, you know, so he did the 13th rep and, and the uh, trainer was one more. And so he's trying to squeeze out this 14th rep and his legs just went to jello and collapsed back in on him. And, and in a, in a controlled manner, he stayed, his trainer was there spotting him, but he just, he couldn't push that last weight. And so, you know, at, in the, in the, moment immediately following it jay felt you know really defeated because he couldn't do it and the trainer clapped him on the back with a big smile and he says congratulations and jay said why he's like because you found failure he's like now you know what your limit is so that you can push through it in the next time and and jay always talks about that right like our with the growth of our muscles we're either growing our muscles or our muscles are dying we're in growth or contraction. And, and those are the two states that all living things live in is growth or contraction. And uh, it's up to you to choose which one you're, you're doing. And are you pushing your limits? Are you, are you trying, are you striving for growth or are you content with slowly dying? And I think when I heard that, um, especially from a peer, somebody who I, I grew up with and, and I've always admired and has always had a bit of a leader role within my own peer group and, and definitely within my own uh, influence, when he brought that to light, it really had an impact on me because I was like, yes, am I just, am I just sitting around waiting for things to happen or am I making things happen? Am I growing or am I contracting? And it has been a mantra that I, I you know, each day I'm trying to do something to, to find some amount of growth because I don't want to be dying. Yeah, no. You know, if you're not growing, you're dying, right? <laughs> That's definitely yeah. it. Thank you so much for bringing that up because a lot of people, and I'm sure my audience would love to understand that concept because failure is beautiful, but not in the moment. <laughs> so sometimes all you can think of is like, oh man, I failed. But when you really look deeper, is like, yes, I failed. But it gives me a chance to look at things differently, a new perspective. So one of the things I hope people understand is perspective. If I can look at it from a different point of view, where can I grow from it? What can I take from it? And what can I change? Right? So everybody who is looking for growth, like all sports teams do it. They look at their replays of when they messed up. They even look at their replays of when they did great because can I even fix that? 
even though it was amazing and everybody's like the best ever, can I fix that? So or not only fix that, can I duplicate? Yeah. Right. Like I, I goaltend uh, for ice hockey and I watch gameplay and I understand I'm not uh, an elite athlete in goaltending. Right. I'm not, I, I haven't uh, the highest. I, yeah, I, I play it for fun. The highest league that I ever played in was uh, Junior B in the Canadian or, you know, um, in, and in the BCHL, uh, mm-hmm. which is still, you know, decently high, but yeah. it's not right. It's not uh, at that point, you're not a professional. You're still definitely amateur. And uh, it's so right now, you know, I'm 25 years removed from any kind of uh, organized level for ice hockey, but I still beer league it. But the guys laugh at me because, again, I'm a performer. I have access to a lot of equipment (laughs) and I have some really good cameras and a couple of GoPros. And I set up at least three cameras on the ice every time I play. I put one behind my net. I put another one at the far net and I put one up on the bench so that I can have a nice side to side view and get a really good view of the ice. And I will look at all of the things that I did well uh, mm-hmm. during the game. So this is what I'm doing well. So let's duplicate that. Right. And these are the areas of improvement where, how can I get better and what can I do? And, and it's fun too, because you get to put together, I think everybody should have a highlight reel that they can play in their mind, oh, yeah. you know, and I have, I have a highlight reel that lasts for a couple of hours because I've done some amazing and, and some really, really cool things in my life. Right. And I think people need to be able to say that too. Like everybody's life has those moments and it, it makes me sad, particularly when I'm working with some of my clients. One of the first things I usually hear with people that I'm working with is, oh, it's great, Tyler, but I don't have an exciting life. You know, I don't have exciting <sighs> stories because my life isn't exciting. And I'm like, it doesn't need to be a Michael Bay Hollywood blockbuster with right. car chases and explosions <laughs> for your life to be interesting or to have meaning. And, and like, for me, you know, I've done some really cool things, but I've also challenged myself to do some really cool things. Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of the things that I like about going back to the game tape is every once in a while, I do something I didn't expect that I could do. Mm. About two months ago, I was playing in a game and not once, but twice I got into full Russian splits to make a save (laughs) at 42 years old. I haven't been able to do the split since I was 25. (laughs) That's the last time I was dancing professionally. The last time I was really uh, forcing my body to stretch. But in that game, A, I was very warmed up. I'm rehabbing a, a, a minor groin tear. And so I was going to a lot of physio. I had, <laughs> I was on a couple of uh, muscle relaxants and some painkillers and happened to find some great flexibility <laughs> in that game. And, and the situation and, and the, of the play forced me to go to the one post and really plant my leg and my skate into the post. And then the, the player came and he did a really quick wraparound and I, and it was just body mechanics and instinct at that point, I kicked mm-hmm. out the other leg and I made the save. And then it wasn't until the play moved on and I had to get out of the splits, which wasn't <laughs> as graceful as they would have been at 25, did I realize that I was in full Russians, that, you know, I'm a small person. I'm five foot eight, 
So when I have toe to toe going to post to post, uh, I am definitely in the splits. Yeah. And, and I realized it in the moment and I was so excited. And then Mm. what happened was, uh, in the next period, I did it the opposite way. There was a play that came around. They tried tucking it. Um, it, it wasn't a wraparound at this point. He'd shot to the one side and I'd made a toe save and I kind of had tracked it so that my toe was still resting against, in this case, the right post. But the way that the rebound came out, the guy was able to grab it right after he shot it and pass it over to his player that was sitting on the left-hand side, just waiting, waiting for the shot. And Mm. I kicked out as quick as I could. And again, I was pushing across with my right leg, jammed my left one in. And again, was in this case, not full, full Russians because I was leaning forward, but definitely hit the splits again. And so it happened twice in the game and I got to go back and look at it in the tape. And I was, I made my wife come down. I'm like, babe, you gotta come see this. Gotta come see this. Look what I did. Yeah, And I I will tell you, the replay in my mind was cooler than the replay on the tape. (laughs) It looked a little bit more awkward on the tape, but I love going back and looking at those moments because that was a thing. Honestly, it was a limiting belief Mm -hmm. for the last 10 years. I've thought to myself, I'm too old to do the splits. I don't have the flexibility anymore. I can't do it. And now I've seen that I actually can. So now I'm actively looking like I've, I've, I've got a program (laughs) that I found. I found an app for stretching and I'm having to take it a little bit slower than what I would like, because again, I'm rehabbing an injury, but I'm finding that flexibility again. Nice. And it's weird how just that one moment was enough to remind me that not only did I used to be able to do it, but I can still, if I, if I allow my body to do what my body wants to do and not allow my mind to tell my body what my body can or can't do, uh, right. what I'm capable of. And that, that again was, it's the thing that I know, mm-hmm. but it was an excellent lesson to relearn. Uh, especially just before Christmas. <laughs> that, was, that was my Christmas gift. <laughs> to me. Good gift. My body can do whatever I want it to. You know, so many people don't realize that movement is, is critical. I post videos every day on movement, every single day. And the other day I had a gentleman talk to me and he was looking to become one of my clients. And he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 52 years old. I'm already old and right there. That was his limiting belief. He's too old. And so it's important for everyone to realize that we put those limitations on ourselves. And everybody who says it, everybody who's older who says it, age is only a number. And, you know, we should be able to say that at any age. So many people, even in their 40s, are saying, I'm too old to do this. I'm too old to do that. And then you see people in their 80s and 90s doing things that young people in their 30s and 40s stop doing because of their limiting beliefs, right? So I appreciate that that you brought that up because it is important for everyone to understand that we are capable of more. Well, in my head, in my head, 1997 was five years ago. Mm. Um, And I often laugh about that because I... I still think, I know I'm 42, but in my head, I'm about 23 or 24. Oh, yeah. Like I just, I, I just, I feel 
young. Every once in a while, my body does a thing and I'm like, Ooh, sign of some wear and tear. But I also know that I can, I can fix that, right? Like I can take some supplements. As you said, movement is, is critical and important. And I can, I know when I creak, I'm like, well, how much have I been sitting in a chair? Let's get out and move. (laughs) And there's a guy that I play against. So goaltenders are always in demand. It doesn't matter what the rules of a league or the rules of a shinny or a rule of an arena is. If you're a goaltender, they bend the rules for you. So I play in a plus 55 league and they have various divisions, plus 55, 65, 75, Mm. and 85. Nice. Plus 85. There are guys that are still out on the ice. And every once in a while, beautiful. they need a goalie because they would rather have somebody in net, even if you're a little young and a little quick. (laughs) And and they'd rather shoot on you. And then it's funny because when I play against some of those incredible gentlemen, it's funny to watch how they up their game, Mm. right? Like I get in there and I start making a couple of stops because they don't quite have the power and they don't quite have the speed anymore. And it's a really good pace for me to be able to shine (laughs) (laughs) until they, until they realize that I'm not playing, you know, down to them that I'm going to play and the compete that some of those gentlemen get, there's a dude that can still wheel and he's almost 90 years old. And the other goaltender that I play against in that league, it just had his 89th birthday. Oh my gosh. And he still butterflies. This is a dude who didn't grow up with the butterfly style. Like this is a guy who would have learned stand-up goaltending and his equipment still looks like it was stand-up goaltender. Like he still has leather pads. I, you can't, Mm. you couldn't get leather pads past the early eighties. Wow. And that's over 40 years old now that he's playing with his equipment, but he's changed his style and in a style that would, I would think would be really hard (laughs) on a 90 year old body and yet he goes in and he drops to his knees and he takes down the lower end of the of the net probably because he's learned that with the guys that he's playing against they're not raising the puck anymore so he's got to seal off the bottom side of the net and it works and and watching him is absolutely awe-inspiring nice i'm quicker than him currently but man i hope i play like him that's it when i'm 90 you know, cause he's, he's still doing it and enjoying it and coming out every week and playing. In fact, that league plays three times a week. Mm. These are 80 and 90 year old guys who lace up and take the ice and play an hour and 15 minutes. Like they don't even do a shorter hour, uh, hour ice time. They do an hour and 15 minutes. These wow. guys take the ice three times a, a week. And no wonder they can, because they're they're challenging themselves to do it. They're finding movement within their body, and they're finding camaraderie, and they're finding social things. There's there's an entire sociological study that I oh can dive God. into on Absolutely. why these guys are still able to do what they're doing at their age, because they're they've been doing it for forever, and they they don't allow their age to limit themselves. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you know, as far as even coaching, right? You want to have a coach who's done it already who knows, who's lived it, who's gone through the experience so they can guide you. And, you know, I strongly believe in coaching. Obviously, you know, you play and you guys have a coach also. So before we go into, you know, your coaching modality and everything else that you're doing, let's talk about some of the movies you've been in because you've been in some horror movies, right? Some cool stuff. So what was your first horror movie? And and tell me that experience. Ooh. 
Ooh, that's actually a really good question. What was the first one that was a horror movie? Because I know I did Scary Freddy Movie 1 and Jason. 3. Well, Freddy versus Jason, but I did Carrie at the same time. And I'm trying to think which one came out first. I think Carrie came out first, but Freddy versus Jason is definitely a highlight because I got to morph into Freddy Krueger. And that, that to this wow. day is... Is still that you know when I talk about the highlight of my life that I play through, getting to meet Robert Eglin and <laughs> seeing him in makeup, oh man, was that a thrill and a treat? Right, because he's iconic, you know, and yeah. and he is Freddy Krueger, and to just to be able to to shake his hand and see him pre makeup, post makeup. And the transformation that happened that that man is one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood. Really? Um, because well, because he's been so typecast because okay. he is Freddy Krueger, because he embodied an iconic role and to his credit, never stopped. Right. Do you know what I mean? He got typecast and so typecast and he really is just not only a phenomenal performer but he's a he's a phenomenal human being too like he is generous with his time with his craft with cat like he is just a genuinely amazing man i had very brief interactions with him i was around that production for a couple of months but i was only um in front of the camera for uh two days worth of filming um because all the rest of my work was behind the scenes with that show he he was just gracious it's the only way that I can describe it. He was so giving with his time, both when he was performing and how he performed and the nature of which he performed, but off set and off camera, he was so gracious with fans, with a cast and crew who were there. Cause everybody wants to, you know, right. they want to touch the glove, right? <laughs> they want to, they want to shake the man's hand. They want to, they want to have a conversation with him like, and he, and that can't be easy. And yet he, he was just really, really good with his time and, and accommodating with people and respect. They don't want him in his too, because of, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and the other thing is too, he's, he's really good because you can't, you can't touch the glove. That's the other right. thing. Everybody wants to touch the glove and you can't touch the glove. Like there's like, it's, it's a thing that's written. Not only, I think it's actually in his contract and it's a thing that gets worked out with the prop guys um, you know, there, there are only certain people who are allowed to handle a glove <laughs> and he is one of like three or four people who actually get to touch the thing. And so he, and so, but again, everybody's going to ask and he's really good at being like, well, this is, you know, these are kind of the rules, but here, you know, I'll let you see it. I'll let yeah, you see it. You know, like he's just, <laughs> he's just a, an, an amazing man. So that, that was a good thing. And yeah, Freddie versus Jason was definitely a highlight of, of the genre that I got to act in. You've taken all your experiences and you decided that you needed to help other people. So therefore you became a coach. When did that happen for you? When did you realize that you have this gift? Well, I don't know that there was ever a, a moment of realization where it was kind of like an aha moment. Mm, okay. More of a thing that I, I've always taken on a leadership role without realizing that I was being a leader. Right. Nice. Um, you know, in elementary, yeah, in elementary school, I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't not popular, but I wasn't also, I wouldn't say that I was the popular kid, you know, like I was, I was a chameleon through mm -hmm. school. 
Gotcha. Because I was able to, you know, I was never a jock, but I was athletic enough that I could do things. Right. Uh, even growing up uh, through organized sport, I was never the best person on the team, but I was never the worst. I, and it's particularly when I started to play hockey, it's an individual position on a team sport. So even when you're doing practices, right, like they're going to, they're going to map out uh, the drill that you're going to do. And, and you as a goalie, just kind of sit on the side, like, you know, you're like, okay, so what do I do in this drill? Like where the shot's going to come from, or are, am I even getting shot on? Am I going over to the corner and working with if, and if you're lucky enough to even have your own coach, a lot of times you're having to, to um, do drills on your own or find out your own way or after your ice session, go and find another coach. Like when I was in, uh, particularly when I started playing, there was no such thing as a goalie coach, especially in, in the younger leagues that I was playing and that, that was just non-existent. Now they have a lot of specialized coaches and there's a lot of, of way that you can go, but I always had kind of, so I would always have that kind of leadership thing. So I'd be off in the corner and the coach would have said the thing. So I have to pay attention to it. And then I would help the guys. I'd be like, no, 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 no. This, this is, you pass over here and then come right. in. And, you know, <laughs> it was just a kind of a natural evolution. And so I, I don't know. I just, I've always had that kind of, and I, again, I was very scholastic, Pat McGuigan, I credit her for really pushing that. And again, Mrs. Young and Mr. Loby and uh, Mr. Irvine, Mr. Turner, all of them through, like, you can see when I started getting straight A's when it became important to me. But when I started getting straight A's, I also had a lot of students who would come to me and ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I was always willing to, to, to give it. So I've always, and again, my father was an educator. My right. grandmother, his mother was an educator. I've always, that's always been kind of intrinsically within my DNA or my early upbringing. It was an influence. And so I, I think a lot of leadership and coaching is championing somebody's own innate internal abilities and helping them see it by encouraging them to learn more. Right. And, and I think that's how I came to understand this, this, this coaching world. And again, being an organized sports, the, the term coach made sense, you know, somebody who is going to show you what you need to show, encourage you to find your own internal ability to do the thing. Then when I, you know, grew up into adulthood, uh, I actually got introduced to the profession of coaching through Jason Krause, mm -hmm. who was an ICF certified coach for, um, coaches international, I think. And he, you know, he, he was somebody who was a, he, he trained people how to be coaches and he reached out to me and he said, you know, Tyler, I think this is a thing that you'd be really good at. Uh, would you like to come and take a couple of training sessions with me? I said, sure. Why not? At that point in my life, I was in a bit of a transition and had found myself with a lot of time on my hands and a definite desire for growth. And so he just, he, he, you know, I got to learn the profession and the technique around coaching to the point where I actually recognized I don't know that I'm so much as a coach as a consultant mm -hmm. because I think coaching, coaching is that ability to help somebody find within themselves their own greatness and challenge them through questioning for them to, to come to that understanding on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, 
however long it takes. And for me, I use a lot of those techniques, but I also go be, I think a coat that coaching thing is just kind of that high pinnacle where you allow people to come to it themselves as a consultant or, or even a mentor. I'm, I, through my own experience telling people, look, this is how you can do it. (laughs) Basically (laughs) do this thing. And (laughs) and, yeah. And from that standpoint, I'm more of a traditional coach, like a sports team coach versus the, what is now a profession of, of coaching and guiding people. Uh, which is, is really an evolution of the understanding of the human brain and allowing people to come to their own understandings where I'm in my practice, I'm more of a consultant slash mentors who utilizes coaching techniques when required. But if they're not working, if people are coming to the understanding on their own, I'm going to be like, okay, look, this is the exercise that we're going to do and we're going to do it. And I understand you're terrified to speak in front of these 500 people, but you're never going to not be terrified until you start doing this thing. One of the things that I constantly drill into every client that I work with and don't work with is that you gain confidence through competence. And the only way to become competent at a thing, and there's a legal definition Uh, by the way, of competence. It's adequately qualified, suitably trained with sufficient experience to perform the task with minimal or no supervision. So if you want to become competent at a thing, uh, you need the experience. You need to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again until it isn't terrifying. And I I explain this to a lot of my clients, like like getting your driver's license. A vehicle is a lethal thing. Yeah. (laughs) Untrained, you can kill other people or yourself. And most people, when they first get their driver's license, are terrified. And the vehicle goes very jerkily those first couple of times, right? Or they stall out or they, they're stop, break, stop, break, stop, break. And their heart is beating and they're terrified. And public speaking is no different, right? Yes, the first couple of times may or may not be scary. Because you and I both know there's a couple of people who were just born to drive and they got behind, they were like me and they got behind the wheel at like, 10 or 12 years old because they're on a farm and just could and moving machinery was fascinating and you weren't afraid of it. Like you probably needed to be, you know, a little bit of healthy fear is, is never a bad thing. And so they would just get out and do. And so they, there are those few anomalies who aren't scared the first time, Mm -hmm. but the majority of people, the first time you're doing something, there's a little bit of trepidation. There's a little bit of nervousness, but the more you do it, the more comfortable you become. You gain confidence through competence. And so I have people who get so stuck in their head that the current coaching model, well, what would it look like if you could explain to me, uh, how would it feel if you were able to do that? And they're like, and none of that's going to work. So I literally have to take them, stick them in front of 500 people and say, talk, (laughs) talk. And, and I, I think make it interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Traditionally, a coach wouldn't do that, but as a consultant, I, I have the flexibility to make that happen in a safe manner. I never, I never put anybody into a position that they, I don't feel that they aren't ready for or can't handle, and I make sure that, that it's a safe environment so that that crowd is not going to be hostile to them, that they're loving and supportive, but nonetheless, I'm still going to do it. Oh, yeah. I'm still going to stick you up in front of those people. I'm going to make you talk. 
That's important. I like I like the analogy used more like a, a sports coach because you have to go by the game book, right? You have to go by the plays. You have these plays and they work. You just have to know how to execute. And that's the whole thing that a lot of people fear. It's the execution. It's it's the follow through. It's the just get out there and do it because that's everything, you know. And like you said, it's okay to fail. You're gonna fail. And we talked earlier about failure, how beautiful it is. If you don't learn from your failures and you cowered away, you're never gonna get back on that stage. You're never gonna speak again. You're never gonna do that thing that you're afraid of or that makes butterflies start forming, right? And I tell anybody who ever gets nervous, I said, it's okay to have butterflies, just have them fly in formation. That's it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's, yeah. it's that simple. And, and it's funny because you and I can say that now and be like, it is just that simple because we recognize the simplicity behind it because we've done it. Yeah. And, and I know that there is an amount of absurdity to the statement for people who haven't. Yeah. But it's, again, it's like riding a bike or getting behind a car. The first couple of times are terrifying. I'm, I'm helping my six-year-old learn to ride a two-wheeler. Nice. And what I find amazing about it, again, we talk about limiting beliefs. She's been on a push bike for years. Since she was like two and a half, three years old, she's had a push bike, which has no pedals, but is still a two-wheel thing. She's never had a proper tricycle. On a push bike, she has perfect balance. She like, she, you know, kicks her feet and can then get up momentum and then stop kicking her feet and cruise for three four, 500 yards, easy, you know, a couple hundred meters if she wants, particularly if she's got a bit of a downhill incline, right. she can just go and have perfect balance and go. As soon as we introduce pedals, I thought for sure, she already, she understands oh, yeah. like in her body understands, but her mind goes, these are pedals and there, and she gets frustrated and she, she's fallen two or three times on the, on the bike and just won't try. She just refuses. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's in personal development, <laughs> part of me wants to be like, no, just try, honey. You gotta, just yeah. gotta get over it. And then the other bit is no, allow her to come to it on her own because if I push her too much, she's gonna rebel against it. So I need her to, to want to do it on her own. But it's been really interesting for me to see limiting beliefs in action mm -hmm. because she actually knows how to ride a pedal bike. The, the pedal just provides the momentum that her feet previously would and she could actually do the same motion like even if she didn't want to pedal she could actually just do the kick but she refuses to do it because she's scared from the first couple of times she's tried to and she's wobbled mm. so she just she at that point she just refuses to try and i know that she can do it and that's again that absurdity it's simple you you know how to do this and yet her mind is allowing her to do it and that's where I would encourage a lot of the people who are listening to this to understand you have the ability to do whatever you want to do uh, as long as you're willing to get beyond the fear. You know, the, the, I think it's that famous saying, and I don't know who said it first, but greatness lies beyond on the, on the other side of fear. And it's true. All of the great things that you can accomplish just happen when you tackle your fear. About it, and uh, this is coming from somebody who still limits himself based on fear. There are things that I 
don't do. And I'm like, oh, nah, I'm just not comfortable doing that. Right. I'm happy in this particular bubble. Let's, I'm not going to push talk my about, growth. Talk about one. Tell me what, what are you afraid of knowing? I know one that really hampered me for a long time. This is probably a bad example because it is a thing that I have actively worked to overcome, but I'm still not fully there. I don't like cold water. Mm. And I know it sounds weird. Drinking but it or, or having it hit your body? Having it hit my body. Drinking it is wonderfully refreshing. And in, <laughs> in fact, I, I consume probably eight glasses of water a day fairly regularly uh, because I recognize the importance of water. Uh, especially in my profession with the amount that I speak, I need to stay hydrated because, um, I don't think people understand how much moisture you, you lose through your mouth. And most people don't have their mouth open as regularly as I do. Uh, right. So I, I require an actual, uh, quite a large amount of water and I live in Canada. And so I, and in a very dry part of Canada, uh, a lot of people don't understand that, um, I'm in a, in a desert, <laughs> even though we have life around us here uh it's a it's a very very arid climate that i live in so i lose a lot of moisture so i drink a lot of water no but i don't like being submersed in cold water and two and a half years ago now i made a commitment to never let that limit me again because my wife and me uh traveled with my daughter out to one of my favorite places in the interior of british columbia and there's beautiful, beautiful lakes. I mean, I live in, in, you know, one of the most pristine areas and countries in the world. I mean, we have an entire tourist industry based on millions of people coming every year just to come and look at our lakes and our mountains. Mm -hmm. So it, it's got to be doing something. Right. And we were, we were at this beautiful lake. And it's actually one of the warmer lakes in the interior. And my wife and my daughter were, were playing. And all my daughter wanted me to do was to come and play with her in the water and and i was like no 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 daddy doesn't like it. daddy doesn't like it. i'll just i'll sit on the beach and i'll be warm in the sun right, right. middle of july and i will enjoy this whether you guys enjoy that water and i will enjoy from here and i could see the disappointment in her face she just yeah. wanted to play and i remember looking back on the pictures a week later and being absent and I don't ever want to be absent in my daughter's life. Nice. And go. I know, because I know what it's like to not have a parent. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't have a choice. My father died. Right. But I miss his presence. Even to this day, I miss him being there. And I, I'm here. So I, there's no excuse for me not to be present <laughs> in my <laughs> daughter's life. And I remember being so disappointed that I couldn't get over this silliness that I, um, my birthday was the following week and uh, starting on my birthday and every day since I've taken a cold shower. I hate it to this day. I do not like it. I don't like doing it. It frustrates me. But the following year we went out and I got to, my wife was actually at a wedding in Ireland and it was the September long weekend here in Canada. And I got invited to be on a houseboat with some family friends and my daughter, there was no reason why we couldn't go. She hadn't started school yet. I'm self-employed. All of my work can be done from anywhere that has an internet connection. And modern houseboats have internet. And you know, this one, uh, the people who owned it actually had a, a satellite uh, internet connection. So it was a really, really good connection. I was able to do all my work that I needed to. Nice. 
And one of the things that they had was a water slide off of the back of the boat that goes into a glacial fed lake. <laughs> it's, it's cold water. It's about two to three degrees Celsius. So just above freezing, it is cold, cold water. And all Kenzie wanted to do was go on that water slide. And I wasn't letting that moment pass us by. And we probably spent three to four hours a day splashing in that lake. And everybody knows, right? Once you get in, water's fine. You climatize to it and you can go. And it's actually worse when you get out. So then you just stay in the water. Yeah. And I don't think if I hadn't committed to those cold showers, I'd be able to do it, but I still don't like it. And uh, another friend of mine um, too, actually have started ice water plunges. Um, Mm. So they'll go to the river, cut a hole in it. And one of the, I got asked if I would go and supervise it because uh, one of my careers is a safety professional. So I would supervise and I used to do stunt work. So between the two, I know how to control these environments and make them safe so that these guys can do these crazy things with a fairly decent current in a frozen river mm-hmm. um, and, and do, a, do a fairly safe plunge. But then they asked, do you want to do it? And two years ago, I would have been like, no, that is the <laughs> right. dumbest thing I have ever heard. And I would rationalize it off, right? From a safety perspective, like you don't go into uh, current and freezing cold water in minus 30 weather that is ludicrous and unsafe but they've hired me to make it so that they can do it safe and now there's no excuse for me not to and so i started doing those plunges i hate every second of it Mm -hmm. i yell at myself every time i do it i go (laughs) why would you sacrifice the warmth (laughs) of your clothing to strip down naked and jump into this freezing cold water, Tyler, you lunatic. But I do it. I challenge myself because, and every time I do it, all I have to do is think of that summer in Penticton and the disappointment on my daughter's face. And there's no, nothing will stop me from jumping in that water at that point. As soon as she was born, she instantly became my wife. Yeah. And she's, you know, uh, and I love, the analogy too, right? If I was to put a tightrope six inches above the ground, how many people here would walk across it? And you know, you if I was in a room of a hundred, probably 85 or 95 people would do it. Mm-hmm. And then if I jacked that thing up 10 feet in the air, how many people would still be willing to do it? And it would probably drop to five or 10 people willing to do it. And then if I put a hundred dollar bill at the other end, three or four might jump on the bandwagon just to try it because money motivates them. But if I was to stick there, if I was to take that same tightrope, stretch it between two skyscrapers, three, four or 500 feet in the air, how many people would walk across that tightrope? None or one. But if I stuck their kids on the other building and set the building on fire, everybody would run across that rope. They would find a way to do it. Exactly. And for me, you know, that's, that's why my daughter is my motivation. There isn't anything that I wouldn't do for her. And, you know, I constantly, we, I constantly reach beyond my means for her because it forces me to get creative, to figure out a way to make it within my means. We've put her into a, a private school that frankly, the tuition gives me palpitations. 
<laughs> but the nice thing is, is it forces me to find ways to make sure that her education is paid for. Cool. And the nice thing is, is in finding those ways of doing it, I'm finding ways of increasing my own net worth and our household income. And since she's been born, our my wife and mine's income has doubled every year. And that's six years worth of exponential growth. I'm I'm hoping I keep that trend going. I don't see why I can't. Um, There's and no it's hope. nice. You you have to yeah. do right. <laughs> well, and that's that's exactly it. That that it, now it's become it stopped becoming a challenge and has started to become a game. And once it once you reach gamification with it, it's amazing oh how gosh, yeah. how much fun that can be. It is, it is. Let's let's talk about and you talked about jumping in naked into cold water. Let's talk about the <laughs> book, the power of. Of uh, public the power to speaking. speak naked. Yeah, power to speak to speak yeah. naked. My gosh, Let, let's talk about that. What made you write that book, and and why use the word naked in there? And even on the cover, it's like what you're half naked or you're fully naked. Fully naked. I fully naked. I mean, covered tastefully, but Correct. fully naked. Fully naked to the point where I'm not allowed to advertise my book on Jeff Bezos's site uh, okay. because it breaches their. Um, <laughs> their decency laws, which I think is 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 unnecessary. I think it, my book is is very tastefully done, but uh, you know that's a debate between me and and Jeff's tech team. But um, what prompted the book? And I I actually didn't write the book. I spoke the book. A lot of that book came from training sessions that we've recorded. That we then uh, grabbed the audio from and then transcribed the audio. And uh, compiled it into logical chapters uh, based on the training nice. sessions, which was both a blessing and a curse because I really only have three key tenets or pillars in my teaching. You know, I believe that everybody has a story, that your story matters, that authenticity is synonymous with self awareness. And the thing that you're afraid to say is, what your audience likely needs to hear. And most of my training goes around exemplifying those things. And so I tend to repeat myself fairly regularly <laughs> as part of an educational device, right? Repetition is what creates that uh, connection. And, uh, and so unfortunately, I, I find personally reading my book, I find it very repetitive. I have been told by others uh, who read it that that repetition is uh, welcomed because it reinforces the ideas that are important. But I do find that I'm using the same phrases. And uh, I think when we publish the revised version next year, uh, one of the things that I made a concentrated effort on with the editing team was to find more creative ways to say the things that I say. <laughs> yes. uh, but the book came. Yes, yes. Uh, but the book came about because a lot of people would ask me how I do what I do. And I would say the same thing over and over again to the point where we created these training devices, but not everybody could come to the training and I wanted to make it more accessible. So what you get out of the book is everything you get coming to one of my two and a half day seminars. Mm -hmm. And people typically are paying 1500 bucks to come to that workshop. And the book is only $17. So I think that makes it uh, considerably more accessible to the masses. Um, and it also allows you to kind of dip your toe into not only the concepts of, of public speaking, but dip your toe into whether or not 
I am the person to lead you on that journey because there is so much choice in the world for anything that you want to learn. You know, I, I, I've been drumming most of my life and I still take lessons to this day, goaltending most of my life and still take lessons to this day. I am somebody who values coaching and mentorship and I will always find new people to, to train me. But I have in both of those fields, thousands of options, Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of options that I can uh, choose. And same with public speaking coaching. Um, any there, there easily, easily 10,000, uh, coaches in just in Canada, I would think not, not only limiting to North America, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands throughout the world who teach public speaking, but not everybody will do it the way that I do. And certainly no one else. There are other people who have come from a performing background, but even then they're not the same as me, right? Who else started in the theater at six years old? specifically, uh, grew to find film and television, which again has been very helpful to me, particularly in the last 18 months, because I have had a much better time transitioning to this virtual world because I already had a studio set up because I was already doing Mm self-tape and doing my own content. And and so I I was using Zoom for my training sessions four years ago. I didn't jump on a bandwagon. I was leading the forefront of that technology. And everybody, I I think people forget four years ago, if you wanted to video conference, you would have said, do you want to Skype? Right. And almost nobody says it now. You know, yeah. do you want to Zoom? Can we do a Teams meeting? Right. There's there's other platforms, but Zoom really took off in this in the last 18 months. Okay. But that's that's I have recordings, a Zoom recordings from four years ago. So I feel, you know, quite proud of myself for that, but that (laughs) has helped me be comfortable on camera. So not, so when I'm coaching people or when I'm training people on how to public speak, I am not limiting you to just stage. In fact, it's one of the first things that I point out in all my training is that there are speaking opportunities every day Mm. and they don't have to be in an auditorium. They're likely in a boardroom or off the back of the tailgate of a truck or speaking to a family member. These are all opportunities for communication and for public speaking. And if you want to get really good at it, you need to recognize where those opportunities are and and constantly pursue them. Be the one to speak up because that's how you find that leadership uh, because most people are uncomfortable doing it. So be the one to embrace that uncomfortable thing and you will be a leader within your organization. Would and you, if you are the head of your organization, you really need to be doing it. Oh, yeah. Would, would you recommend people start looking into figures who do public speaking on a regular basis, like politicians? Obviously, they all do this public speaking. Some of the presidents that we've had throughout our time, even ministers, churches, synagogues, all these people were constantly in front of people and you just watch even mannerisms i believe and the way they connect the connection is everything right and and you talk about how we connect and reconnect with an audience before we go on i i want to i want to require uh two things from you one is i want a copy of your book signed because i am talking to the author i'll definitely i'll gladly pay for it by the way and the other thing is what advice 
as a professional yourself, a professional coach consultant, would you give someone who is looking for a coach or to become a coach or a consultant? Uh, well, so first, yes, you can have a signed copy of my book, Raphael. Mm -hmm. That would be my gift. And actually, what we could do, because I'll be on Heroes Rising with you in April, if you want, we'll give and I will send you uh, an autographed copy from my uh, collection so that you okay. have yours. And then we'll just we'll give the three away uh, off to to the attendees of Heroes Rising as, as my gift to them. Let's and, do it. And we'll take care of that. But the next question that you had, and it's critical, if you want to grow, finding a mentor or a coach is critical in that process because you need the outside eyes. You need to walk that path of somebody who's been there, right? Sir Edmund Hillary didn't get to the top of Everest on his own. Mm. He had a team of Sherpas who knew that mountain, who very likely had summited it oh, yeah. long before some English guy put a flag <laughs> in the top of it, right? He gets credit for it because he was the first one to record it. But you and I both know that a whole bunch of people from Nepal have definitely seen the top of that before some white guy from England did. Mm -hmm. And he relied on the Sherpas who knew the trail to get to the top of that mountain. And that's, that's what you need. You need the expertise. You need the local knowledge. Mm. You need the people who are climatized to that environment to help lead you through the obstacles, through the dangers who can encourage you when you're doing something proper oh, yeah. because they recognize what is proper and what is not. And they can help support your strengths because we all come into them with our own strengths. We all have some innate talent that we're trying to foster and nurture. And we need somebody who can recognize that so that we can see, see the potential and help it grow. And a lot of times we can't see that ourselves. So you need to find various entities who can help you do that, but it's critical that you find fit. My style and my technique will not resonate with everyone, nor do I want it to. So that's the other thing. If you want to become a consultant, if you have a specialty, if you have a gift, if you have a talent that you want to showcase and you want to start showing other people how to do this thing that you know how to do, don't try to show everybody. It's not for everybody. You know, I, I always... I love those those people who are, you know, trying to sell things to the masses. Pizza. Everybody loves pizza. Okay, but what kind of pizza? So I can tell you right now, I'm not a big fan of the specialty pizzas, you know, like the the donair meat one or like the the barbecue chicken pizza. Don't. I want a pepperoni pizza. When my wife and I treat ourselves to pizza, my daughter likes Hawaiian ham and pineapple. Right. I like pepperoni. And if I want to really get crazy, pepperoni, mushroom, green pepper. I think that is the, that that is pizza. That is what pizza is supposed <laughs> to be. Unless you go to Italy and then I'll have a nice flat bread. Uh, but pizza in Italy is drastically different than pizza in North America. If I'm eating North American pizza, I want pepperoni, mushroom, green pepper. And my wife loves those specialty things. Like If it doesn't actually have pizza sauce, then it's good. Like if it's got barbecue sauce and chicken on it, or if it's got donair sauce and donair meat, or if it's got something other than a marinara, she loves that pizza. And I think it's an abomination. <laughs> so quit trying to sell me your abomination pizza and let me eat my pepperoni. And you when you're looking choice, for, yeah. yeah, when you're making 
when you're looking for a coach, you got to do the one that resonates with you. That makes you salivate. That makes you want to consume mm-hmm. that thing that you go. Yes. No, that, that resonates with me. That works for me. I'm incredibly lucky to have worked with some of the giants in the industry. I have worked with a phenomenal woman named Aaron Sky Kelly, who runs an incredible uh, development program called Transformation Weekend. She works very closely with Tony Robbins, and everybody knows Tony Robbins is, you know, power within. And so your UPWs, Unleashed Power Within, uh, the Date with Destinies, like his programs are are well known. And because of my proximity to a couple of the people, I I actually get to volunteer when Tony comes to Canada. Mm. Um, I, I, I work very closely with the, with the company that is, uh, that brings him to Canada and has that contract. And so I get tickets and my wife at one point was going through, you know, we all have that where we're just directionless. What do we do? Yeah, yeah. And What's so I, I said to my wife, well, here, I'll get you a ticket to this transformation weekend thing. And in my opinion, what Aaron does is better than what Tony does. Her transformation weekend is basically date with destiny, com- taking six days compressed into two and a half and is all content, no fluff. Mm-hmm. And it's a real, it's, it's a grind, but man, is it good. And I, frankly, I like transformation weekend better than date with destiny. And I love date with destiny, gotcha. love date with destiny. So I got, I got my wife this ticket to transformation weekend. She went and she was like, Eh, I mean, it's okay. It's all right. It's like, it's all right. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And she was like, that's eh, okay. And I'm like, okay, well, you know what? You are getting the light version then. Let's, let's actually take you to Tony. Cause I can get you tickets to Tony. So when Tony came to Calgary, I got my wife tickets to Tony and he's Tony Robbins, the big man, but literally the giant of the industry. Absolutely. And afterwards I was like, so what did you think? And she was like, eh, I mean, it was okay. But at that event, another speaker named Nurka, who does um, quantum shift work with, uh, she, I think she started as a hypnotist and, and does a lot of NLP work. And, uh, and Jen was like, but I like this Nurka girl. I think I'm going to go. Can you get me tickets to her thing? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's easy. I'll get you Nurka. So then Nurka came, Jen goes to that. She comes back two and a half days later and goes, do you know that your thoughts become your reality? I'm like, uh-huh. She's like, do you know that you can think things into existence, that you can program your mind to do the things that you want it to do? And subsequently you can change the, your environment around you based on how you think. I'm like, babe, Aaron said that two years ago. Tony said that last year. And now the way that Nurka said it mm-hmm. resonated with her. It's the delivery, right? It's all about the delivery. So if you are looking for a coach, I think it's important that you interview them, Mm, that you find somebody who you can create a design alliance with that understands you and that you understand them, that you have a rapport with. Because if you don't have a rapport with them, you're not going to listen to them. Correct. And And I think it's important that you find somebody who you feel listens to you because really... That's the key to a good coach. A good coach will listen to you and will help you find that meaning, find that passion, find and help push you because they understand you and they take the time to get to know you. So I would, I, I look for fit and resonance and I've, and subsequently I've had some phenomenal coaches 
in my time. And I've been very blessed to have coached some phenomenal people in my time because I take the time to find that fit. Uh, and it needs to be a two-way street. So that would be my recommendation. And I know that's a 15-minute oh, that's great. Thank <laughs> journey you. to get to it. But uh, uh, that would be my big recommendation to your yeah. listeners. If they're looking for a coach, find fit first. And, you know, even though you didn't give me a two-sentence answer, which would not have been as clear, but we need the clarity that you just gave us. So I appreciate you taking the time to explain it, to explore it, and give me stories along the way, which storytelling is everything about public speaking. And clarity. I think clarity is what so many people lack, and clarity is what we all should look for. We should understand the message, right? That, to me, that's, that's key. That's key number one. When we're delivering a message, we should be able to deliver it so we can have the person listening or the audience listening understand us. Because if you talk to 500 people, they're all going to get a different message. And it's the same message you think you're delivering. And then somehow we need to make that connection as well. So I appreciate what you just did. Thank you so much. Well, I, I do it because one of the, my great mentors and somebody who I'm privileged to have had the chance to not only work with from a tutelage standpoint, but then to actually get to work with as a peer, mm. which just every time I get to say it makes me just smile with pride, is Les Brown. And one of the things that I learned from him and that he says very famously is you never make a point without a story and you never tell a story without a point. And I think it's so poignant because it's the story that allows the clarity. Absolutely. And you get that clarity because the story allows you to understand, to, to literally illustrate the point that you're making. But it needs to have a point. <laughs> you <laughs> yes, can go on the longest, longest diatribe on the planet, take hours of time telling your story. As long as that story has a point, that's, that's critical. I know. For me, I used to love watching, and you said, you know, do I study other speakers? Yes. Oh, yeah. And I love that you pointed out that there, there are so many different places that you can do that. At church, whatever your denomination is, go to others too. Mm -hmm. One of, I, I, when I was young, one of the first classes that I ever enrolled in in post-secondary was actually theology because I'm fascinated, fascinated by religion. And one of my favorite things to do is to go to churches of different denominations because I, I, I just, I, I, again, I find religion amazing. But one of the things that I do find is these men of the cloth, the men of faith, regardless of the denomination, uh, how they connect mm -hmm. with their congregation, how they connect with that flock, how they reach into the heart to touch the mind and not the other way around. And to see that uh, is, is one of the greatest gifts that any person who's trying to learn how to public speak should do is to really go and study. Because not, and again, not every pastor or minister or priest or rabbi is good at it. Yeah. And one of the great things get you better. can do <laughs> yeah, is, is study all people because then you can start to see, okay, well, why, why didn't that work? Why didn't that land? What mm. could I do? How, what can I learn from this? Cause you can, it's not just your failures that you can learn from it's others. Yeah, and yeah. it's not just your successes that you can learn from it's others finding the things you want to emulate and model 
is just as critical as finding the things you don't want to emulate and model. One of the greatest gifts that I got in my early childhood was seeing my mom after my father's passing date a incredibly verbally abusive alcoholic Mm. man because it gave me not something to pattern and emulate, but something specifically not to pattern and emulate. And I mean, I, I understand I had a great love and a great respect for that man because no one person is just one thing. He was also an incredibly accomplished musician and an amazing businessman. Everything that I know about business, I first learned from him. How to be a good salesman. To this day, I wouldn't have the sales um, chops that I have if it weren't for him. I wouldn't have learned to play the drums if it weren't for him. But I also know how to be a good husband and father because of the things he didn't do and because of the things that he did. So we can find lessons all over. And it, it... and that's that's why I love studying the greats because even the greats have had bad moments. You know, and it's uh, it's interesting how you talk about going to see different, go to different churches and so forth. But I mean, you can turn on your TV on Sunday mornings, and one of my favorites to watch is Joel Olstein. The man is amazing. And here's the thing, right? Every so often, mute it and just see his gestures. His hand positionings, that big, beautiful smile, and the fact, the connection. And then put it back on, and he always starts with in the engagement, like a, a funny story, a joke. And, and it's so on. The way he just manages to attract and pull you in. And it doesn't matter your religion, because he's just talking. And he, he's, he's driving you in, and he's taking you to a place. And, and he's just phenomenal. I read his books, and one, the only reason I read his books is because, not for the religious aspect, but to get where his mind is. Because he grew that church from nothing. And he now, he's got a stadium. Millions. Stadium. Millions of, oh, yeah, yeah, a stadium and millions of people who oh watch him every I when I was um down south, <clears throat> he was actually one of the people that I wanted, wanted to see. You can't get into his church. I tried. I mean, there's a uh, reason. Actually, yeah, I was yeah, I almost did. I almost, yeah, there's well, a I was reason. in Texas. His 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 stadium is in, in Texas. So so here's the thing. So I was speaking at NASA in um November of I think 2018. 2018 or 29. No, it must have been 2018. And I had I had a, a really cool uh, speaking tour down there, so I was I got to speak at uh, uh, AMU and and just a couple of really really interesting places, Chamber of Commerce, uh, Minute Maid Stadium. Loved Houston, but I couldn't get in to see Joel Austin, but I did get in to see uh, Carrie Shook at the Woodlands Church, mm. and and that again was a phenomenal study. And exactly what you said, how. The, the theatrics. Like, oh, so again, I'm, I have a theater background, so I'm watching the production value of oh, what they're doing and the amount that goes into serving their audience. And I think that's, that's the real key to being an effective speaker is remember, it has nothing to do with you. It's not, it is not about you. It is about serving your audience and giving them what they need. And in the case of Carrie Shook or Joel Austin or, or any other faith-based thing, that is that is being the vessel to provide a connection to your audience with a higher power, giving them 
faith, giving them belief, giving them guidance right. in their life. And the, the amount that has gone into serving that audience, particularly mm-hmm. with those two, especially Joel Austin. And you're right. Why I I've done exactly what you said. It's funny that you mentioned. It. I've 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 watched a show. I've watched a sermon and put it on mute because it's amazing what you can see. And again, most of communication is not verbal. It's it's the visual. It's it's the gestures that we do. And you can see in his eyes the connection that he has with his congregation. Like he. You can see that he's he not only is he connected, but that you know, you talk about needing to have faith. He's a man of faith. You have to believe in your message. And so, regardless of what your message is, well, you know, if you're a minister and you're talking about actual faith, or if you're me and you're talking about the power of public speaking, I need to believe my message. Mm -hmm. If I don't believe it, my audience never will. I know in my core who I am. And that's again what I had talked about it previously. One of my key pillars and tenets is authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. You can't be an authentic speaker if you don't know who you are at your core. And until you can identify internally who you are, you will never be able to uh, convey that externally. You have to know your being inside and out in order for you to truly affect change in the world the way that you want to. And, uh, And I know that I know my core messaging. I know that I believe that this this skill of public speaking is one of the greatest things anyone can do for themselves in their life because it is amazing what can be accomplished when you have the courage to stand up and speak your mind. Oh yeah. That's really all public speaking is is being able to put voice to your thoughts mm-hmm. and allow others to truly hear what you have to say. Yeah. And if you limit or diminish yourself from doing that, you are doing a disservice to the world. And I believe that at my core, and I will never stop saying that. That's, you know, I mean, that's what really propels me forward. You talk about my daughter being my why. It's why she's dedicated in my book. You know, Mm -hmm. I I say in my dedication that I want her to always have the courage to speak up and the faith that her voice will be heard. And I want, and it's my goal to shape a world in which that is a reality. Because currently, as it stands, uh, statistically, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. Societally, where I live, her voice will be diminished. And that I I know I don't ever want that. Not even within my own household. I have to be very conscious, right? Like right now, I she is watching the Harry Potter series because (laughs) daddy needs time to do his work. And his work requires that I have a very sound insulated and controlled environment that tends to be very disrupted when a six-year-old runs through it. (laughs) Um, But I would never tell her to be quiet. I'm very conscious of the language that I use around my daughter. Mm. What I say is that I need this space to be quiet for this time period. And when I'm done, if she has anything she wants to talk about or say that I will listen because that's important to me, but I, I need this time. She doesn't need to be quiet. I need quiet for this. And if she could help with that, that would be great. And then she knows that her voice is important, but that daddy needs this space right now to be a controlled area. And I think that's, that's critical because I've worked with so many people now that have this fear of public speaking 
that has started from childhood from a parent saying, quiet, shh, you're to, you need to be seen and not heard. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> and, and a lot of times as a parent, we're not saying that because we actually mean that. And we do want to hear what our kids have to say. What we're saying is not now, we yeah, need right. not now we need the quiet, but that has a real lasting impact on a developing brain mm-hmm. that can't process the context of the statement. And what ends up happening is this subconscious seed of my voice doesn't matter is planted. And unfortunately, a lot of what we do in our early childhood development then waters and fertilizes that seed. You know, the the next most common thing that I work with that I have to overcome is uh, somebody who in early elementary school, first grade, second grade, third grade, raised their hand or worse, was just called upon in class without raising their hand to give an answer. And they gave the wrong answer and the class laughs at them or snickers or the teacher scolds them for giving the wrong answer. And subsequently, they falsely equate using their voice with negative reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that is that is a one-off, but they allow that to become the norm and the rule as opposed to an aberration. Yeah. And I am very, very hyper-conscious of that with my daughter. You know, you, you made me think of that. I think it's a comic or something where there's a little girl and she's tugging on her mom's skirt and she's like mom 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 and the mom's like quiet quiet mom and she keeps going on and on and on and finally the mother gives in and goes what and the little girl goes hi you know and that's it a kid will be persistent because they want to be heard and if we can listen and hear them then we allow them to function better when they're adults, when they're teenagers. Because look how many teenagers are walking around with their heads down, without the confidence, without being able to say things, what's on their mind. And unfortunately, that also draws into suicide for teens because they're not being heard. So I appreciate you saying that because I always am advocate for let the kids talk. And like you said, let them know, hey, there's a time for certain things. And when they get older, they'll start to understand. But always encourage communication. For me, everything is communication. And you know who I think should really do public speaking? Salespeople, period. I mean, everybody should. I totally agree. But a salesperson who is not doing well at their job, but they want to pursue something, I 1,000% think they should get into public speaking because, and two other things they have to think about is, do I believe in the product I'm selling and do I want to pursue this? And if so, you need public speaking. Storytelling is going to sell your product and it's not about you. It's not like, hey, I want you to buy this. No, why do you should buy this? So yeah, storytelling is huge. And we should be able to do it everywhere. And earlier you talked about the teachers who influenced you. I have two who influenced me that I can still remember their names. And it's the way they communicated. All the other teachers, I don't remember their names. I remember their faces. And then some teachers, the only reason I truly remember their names is because besides falling asleep in their class because they were so boring, 
I mean, I didn't really fall asleep, but I'm saying I looked around and everybody's like doing the other things instead of paying attention. And it's, it's, it's that communication that hap- has to happen for us to not only make a connection, but even to make a sale, right? And you talked about salesmanship before. We need a connection to get a really good sale, and especially as a coach or a mentor or a consultant. You have to connect. Otherwise, there's, there's no, no joy. I, I don't work with people who I don't enjoy. All my clients, I love. And if there's somebody who wants to work with me and I don't feel it, I'm going to say, you know what? There's another person that you can work with. Let me refer you because I want joy in my life, right? Listen, we need to find joy in everything we do. Everything. So for me, joy is everything. Tyler, you have been an incredible, incredible guest. Thank you so much for today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and the depth that we went into it. I really, really appreciate you. How can someone reach you? How can some of my my listeners find you and and, and get your book? Well, I, all first of all, I mean everything's available on Mr. Bezos's site, uh, but I think he's rich enough as it stands, so um, it's available online. The book, so it's, pick your pick your local bookstore is really what I would say, because. Mr. Bezos has now flown to space a couple of times in a phallic-shaped rocket, uh, so I think he's doing just fine. <laughs> but your local bookstore is very likely struggling through these times. Um, and my book is available in over 100 countries. It may not be immediately stocked in your bookstore, but you can always order it through your bookstore. So the first thing I would encourage everybody to do is go down to your local bookstore and, and actually say hi to your local book retailer. And if you want to ask for the power to speak naked there, they may have to special order it in, but they can definitely do that. Uh, Next best thing is to go to any one of the websites, including Jeff's, but uh, barnesandnoble.com, people can get it through, or um, depending on uh, where your listeners are, anybody in the States can go to uh, bookshop.org which I always encourage people to do. If you're able to order through bookshop.org, I like it because A, you can get my book for about a dollar cheaper through there. And bookshop.org will connect you online with your local book retailer nice. if if you are in the United States. Outside the United States, you're going to have to go down and actually talk to your local bookkeeper but our bookshop. But uh, the uh, on bookshop.org, in the States, uh, you can connect with uh, online through your local book retailer. And what I like the most about bookshop.org is that they take a percentage of all of their sales, which would normally be their commission, and they pool it in a fund that they then give to local bookstores. So if a local bookstore is Mm -hmm. struggling, they can apply for grant funding from uh, and bursaries from bookshop.org. Right now, bookshop.org has raised over $16 million to do that. So wow. if you're in the States and you want to get a copy of my book, bookshop.org would be where I would recommend it first and foremost, because you'll get it cheaper. It's still an online experience. You'll support your local book retailer who will get the proceeds for the sale. And then you will also help other local book retailers by uh, providing funding to that, that pool of fund. So that's always my favorite one. And then if anybody wants to learn anything about me, um, my speaking appearances, including 
Heroes Rising in April. We have everything listed on my website, which is seantylerfoley.com. Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. And just, uh, you know, tell them Tyler sent you. And uh, we have a whole bunch of really good freebies that are available there. And as you pointed out, Raphael, if anybody wants to explore uh, what it would be like working with me, if they want to, you know, take a peek into my, to my style and my training on the website, um, right above the fold, we have a link to my free Facebook group, which is called Endless Stages. Mm. And I go live there every Tuesday and give Tyler's Tuesday Tips, which is a 20-minute training session on whatever happens to be uh, a topic that is grabbed from the group. I, I tend to go through the comments in the group over the, the week or the month and see what people are struggling with. And then I will do a deep dive for 20 minutes into a specific topic. And then that recording gets posted. So people can go through the whole library awesome. and look back in time and see it. And it's a free Facebook group. So then they get to know whether or not my kind of training, my kind of coaching and mentorship, uh, my consulting is a style that they resonate with and right. it doesn't cost them anything to do. So that's my gift to anybody who wants to go to SeanTylerFoley.com or you can just type in endless stages on Facebook and find the group that way. That's amazing. Thank you so much again for today. So much fun. And I definitely look forward to, you know, having you on Heroes Rising in April. Looking forward to it, my friend. Well, we'll see you then. And thank you so much for the opportunity, Raphael. All right. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Raphael. Thank you, and I really appreciate your help.